Thank you, Chelsea. Uh, thank you, thank you. It was awesome. Um, eight years ago, uh, Chelsea was entering into harvest as a sixth grader. Um, and eight years later, uh, boy, God's doing some really awesome things in, in Chelsea's life. And uh, we're so grateful. It's not just her. It's a, it's a, it's a ton of other people that God has uh, been raising up as, as kingdom uh, servants and, and just really uh, bringing a difference in the world. So we praise God for that. Um, welcome to our sixth graders. This is awesome. Can we give them a big round of applause? Yeah. It's so awesome. Uh, <laughs> uh, so beautiful. Um, I don't know. Uh, they're, they're obviously uh, very handsome and very cute, but uh, yeah, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna rip this world apart for the glory of God. They're going to do awesome things, and I'm excited for that. Um, so we welcome you last night at our youth gathering. Uh, we welcomed our sixth graders in, and um, yeah, just watching them hop around on chairs <laughs> and do the different things that they're doing was really uh, it's really exciting and, and, and fun and, and just dreaming and envisioning of what God's going to do uh, in their lives and what he's going to do through their lives. Um, so welcome to you all. I want to encourage and, and just actually invite you, maybe in light of, in light of what, what Chelsea shared, uh, if you're a sixth grader, I want you to just imagine, um, you don't have to close your eyes to imagine this, maybe you, you, you can if you want, um, but imagine yourself um, eight years later. Okay? Eight years later, you're about to start your sophomore year in college. Uh, for the rest of us, um, maybe I can invite you and encourage you to, to dream and, and to think about where do you, what would life, what is life going to be like for you in eight years, right? Eight years from now. For some of you, um, it means you're going to be out of college. If you're in college now, for some of you, that means um, you'll be old. <laughs> Others of you, it means, I don't know what it will mean for some of you. Uh, those who may not have kids now, may have children. Some of you who have kids in, in our youth ministry, they'll be in college. Some of you got kids in college, they'll be grown up. Um, you'll be living in different places. But just imagine, who will you be eight years from now? And as you think about that, I want you to particularly think about what are you going to be, like imagine who you're going to be at a spiritual level. In your relationship with God, what, what are you going to look like? Are you still going to be coming to church? Uh, where are you going to be in terms of your like hunger for God? Will you have plateaued this year and then everything else is downhill? Where do you want to be? Where do you want to be when it comes to your desire for the word of God or your, your longing, I want to live for the glory of God? What's it going to look like the next uh, eight years later, your, your heartbeat for missions or your desire for the church, your longing for the things of God? Because if you think about that kind of person, uh, I want to ask this follow-up question. Is there anyone in your life right now who's living the kind of life that you aspire to be, aspire to have eight years from now? Because if what people say is true, Jim Rohn made this famous, he said, you will become in the future the average of the five people you spend the majority of your time with. So think about the five people you spend most of your time with. The law of averages says in the future, five years, eight years, ten years later, you are going to become like the five people you spend most of your time with. So are you spending time with the kind of people that you want to become like? Because in the future, this is, these are the kind of people we're shaping. In other words, show me your friends, they say, and I'll show you your future. 
We've been in, in the middle of this series. We're in the middle of the series called Three People. And I don't know who those five people are in your life. I don't know who the five people will be in your life. I hope that uh, your five people are going to be shifted and altered because of what we're talking about here last week, this week, and next week. But what I want to do is introduce three people into the circle of five, three people that you need to have. Three people that you've got to have in your life. Last week we said you need to have someone like Paul. Paul in the Bible was a mentor. He was a guide. He was an older person, spiritually more mature. You need someone like that in your life who's going to lead you and direct you and guide you uh, in the future. You need someone like Barnabas. We're going to talk about that next week. A friend, a peer, someone who's maybe a couple years older, younger than you, but you see them as a friend. They're going to challenge you and you're going to challenge them. And together you're going to run the race and fight the fight uh, until you see Jesus face to face. You need someone like that. Today I want to talk about this idea that you need a Timothy in your life. A Timothy was a younger person. So Paul was a mentor to Timothy. Timothy was a younger person, a mentee, if you will, a disciple, a younger person, a person of the next generation, whatever you, however you want to spin it. But that's what Timothy was. He was someone a little bit younger who needed guidance, who needed direction. And what the case I'm trying to build for, the next, uh, for, for this three-week series is that these are three people that we need. Not just they need us, but we need them. If we don't have a Paul in our lives, then it's going to be very difficult for us to navigate through the landmines of life. If we don't have a Barnabas, well, we all obviously all need friends. But if we don't have a Timothy, then it's like we're feeding and feeding and feeding and feeding, but we're not giving any of that out. And so we're just getting large and lazy without ever exercising and then growing thereby in spiritual power. We need a Timothy in our lives as well. Today I want to talk about that. Every one of us, whether you're a sixth grader or you're a 67-year-old, we all need a Timothy in our lives. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. I know this is the passage we looked at last week. We saw from the perspective of how we need a Paul. Today I want to look at it from the perspective of how we need a Timothy. This is God's word, 2 Timothy 1. Paul writes this letter to Timothy at the end of Paul's life. Timothy's now a pastor at the church in Ephesus. And right before Paul dies, this is what he writes. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandma Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life. It's not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. 
That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. This is God's word. As we uh, think about, as we talk about this, everyone needs a Paul. I think we can all kind of get our hearts around that idea that we all need someone who's going to mentor us and lead us and and shepherd our hearts so that we can become more like Christ and, and live in fulfillment of the hope and the dream that God has for us. But this idea that we all need a Timothy, like every one of us needs a Timothy, someone younger than us, someone who's coming behind us on the spiritual journey, someone who's a little bit um, younger than us at a spiritual level. Uh, a lot of times it'll be, it'll be the case that they're younger uh, at, a, at, a physical, uh, at a physical level as well. But we all need someone like that, even those of us who are sixth graders. And we all need someone like that in our lives. I want you to think about who that kind of person could be, someone that you uh, are called to invest in at a spiritual level. Maybe as a sixth grader, some of you, we had a couple people last week, a couple gals uh, in seventh grade who were worshiping in our alpha service, that's our morning service, and I asked them why they were there, and they said, because we want to go and we want to serve the children of our children's ministry, of our kingdom keepers. At a seventh grade level, they're understanding that there are people coming behind me who need the example that I have set, that I'm a Paul to their Timothy. Whether you're in sixth grade or you're 70 years old, we all need a Timothy in our lives. What does that look like? Three thoughts here. The first thing is this. Not everyone can be a parent, but every child of God, every Christian has been called to be a spiritual parent. Not everyone can be a parent, but every Christian has been called to be a spiritual parent. uh, Inside of your bulletin every week, I I write this letter um, for something that's going on in our church or something that's in my heart. And every Mother's Day, I write a letter, um, just honoring and thanking God for the mothers in our midst. But one of the things that I'm very clear and very intentional about is to honor not only the biological, physical mothers in our midst, but to honor those who are spiritual mothers in our midst. Because of this simple fact. And not all of us are parents, but every Christian is called to be a spiritual parent. As long as there's someone coming behind you, if you're a child of God, you've been called to invest into their lives. To be a Paul sort of figure, a Pauline or Paulette, whatever it might be, but a Paula, to invest into the Timothys and the Timotheus of our lives. What does that mean? It means very simply... In the Bible, okay, the Bible makes it clear that the spiritual nurture, the spiritual parenting role should be, right, should be the responsibility of the biological parent. So if you're a parent as a Christian and you got kids, the discipleship responsibility lies squarely on your shoulders. Right? So if you're a parent and your kid is going astray, don't blame church. Don't blame the Kingdom Keepers Children's Ministry. Don't blame our youth ministry. Don't blame those teachers. They're your responsibility. And the Bible makes that crystal clear. Through and through and through and through, they're your responsibility. Yeah, the church comes along and ought to help and resource the parents, but they're your responsibility. I have a, a friend in Virginia. He's a pastor. and He goes so far as to say in the membership classes, he says to parents, he says, listen, don't expect me to pray for your kids. That's your responsibility. Right? Don't, don't put that on me to raise your children. Right? That's on you. That's your calling. The Bible does make that clear. And in an ideal covenant community, 
the spiritual care and nurture of the children of the youth of your children will fall to you, right? That's your responsibility. My first church is Olivia, Manny, Elijah, and Elise. That's my first church. If they go astray, it's on me. And if they go astray for a moment, I'm cool with that because I'm praying for them. I'm modeling faith, and discipleship happens over a long period of time. But that's our responsibility. In fact, Paul says that here. He says, listen, Timothy, I see your faith. Okay? I, I, I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in Grandma Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I'm convinced, I'm persuaded, now lives in you. So at a certain level, okay, Lois and Eunice, they did it right, raising Timothy in the faith. But there's a challenge here because it's not an ideal world. And not all parents are equipped, ready, or Christians so that they cannot raise their, bi- their biological children as spiritual children. The tricky thing comes, though, when we begin outsourcing this responsibility to other people. That is a tragic neglect, and the responsibility falls on us as parents. That's our responsibility. But there are cases, as it was in Timothy's life, where dad is absent. Dad is not there. He was a Gentile. He didn't have the faith, and so he wasn't raising Timothy in the faith. We don't know what happened. Maybe he passed away. Maybe he didn't, uh, he didn't believe. Whatever the case might be, it's in that absence and in that void that Paul writes in verse 2 to Timothy, my dear son. What's he saying? Timothy wasn't a biological, parent, uh, biological son to Paul. Paul wasn't Timothy's biological parent, but he said, I'm going to be a spiritual parent to you because this is what the family of God does especially to people who don't have parents who can raise them in the faith. This is where we need to come in and be the church. And this is, a, it is something that as I prepare this that I've been really challenged by. If there are people within our church, if they're children, if they're young people, if they're youth students, whoever it might be, who don't have parents who are able to raise them in the faith, then whose responsibility is that? That comes to us as the church. We can't all be parents, but every one of us is called to be a spiritual parent. It means teaching kingdom keepers, it means teaching youth. It just means getting involved in the lives of the people who are coming behind us. Okay, uh, hey, I'm in sixth grade. This is my first day, and you're already telling me to be a spiritual parent. That's kind of weird. But can I tell you something? Uh, of our sixth grade, we, we have a lot of really cool sixth graders. But we have, they're all cool, but I want to highlight one of the cool so we have one, Rehan Terrell, whose uh, mom and dad, Rick and Gian, are, are house church shepherds for one of our house churches. When Rehan was about two, so Rehan may not remember this, when he was two, his mom was pregnant with her second child, who would be Ella. And so Rehan, I think he was a little bit excited about that, but he knew that something was happening <laughs> because mommy was getting bigger and, you know, people were talking to them and stuff. And so people would say, Rehan, are you ready to have a baby in your family. And he was excited. He said, yeah, I'm ready, I'm ready. This was like, what, 10 years ago, right? Rehan, where is baby? Where is baby? And instead of pointing to his mom's tummy, he would bravely and confidently and joyfully run around lifting up his shirt, exposing his belly, saying, baby, baby, baby's in here. Well, at a biological level, he was wrong. What do you expect from a two, three-year-old? But at a spiritual level, I think he was illustrating something that many of us don't realize, that every one of us is pregnant with spiritual children. 
that each of us has a spiritual destiny within us. And so last year, you can call it prophetic if you will, but last year, Rehan started leading a children's house church of the children of the people in Rick and Gian's house church. And he would get these 10 to 15 kids and he would sit them down as a fifth grader and he would start praying for them and he would start teaching them the word of God doing crafts with them. You're never too young, my friends. If a fifth grader can do it, what's our excuse? It's a neglect to our own demise, right? This is on us. Every single one of you, every single one of us, if you're a child of God, has been called to be a spiritual parent. Right? That's all of us. If you're a biological parent, all the more. But even if you're not, okay, this is the responsibility of every single one of us as long as there's someone who's coming behind us. First thing that we see is that you, not everyone can be a parent, but every one of us, every Christian has been called to be a spiritual parent. Second thing that we see, second thing is that spiritual parenting is investing into those who come behind us. It's about saying, hey, okay, there are people coming behind us. I'm going to make a spiritual investment into their lives. What does that look like? Four things I want to bring out. Number, uh, first thing in verse 3. This is what Paul says to Timothy. He says, I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Can I tell you, spiritual parenting is a lot easier than you might think. The first thing it's, it requires is that you pray for somebody else. Is there anyone in here who cannot pray? This morning, my son Elijah, he's six. He's not, um, you know, he can be crazy, he can be rambunctious, but this morning, he prayed for all of you. He was praying for a bunch of them. He prayed for sick people who, who people were sick to get better. Pray, Dad, please help Daddy to preach a good sermon. Help the people who listen to be changed. As my six-year-old boy praying for you. Anybody can pray. Okay, anybody can pray. Three-year-old can pray. Hundred-year-old on their deathbed can pray. Every single one of us can pray. If you can pray, then you got the first thing down to being a spiritual parent. The, um, our four-year-old, Elise, had, um, she had uh, uh, shots this week. And so she came back at, after getting shots in, like, different parts of her leg. And uh, she got a piece of paper from the doctor that said if uh, you get pain, uh, redness, or it gets hot around that area, then you may have an infection. So a couple days later... Elise um, said to her, her older sister, Manny, who's eight, she said, Manny, uh, my leg is, I, yeah, my leg hurts, right? My leg hurts. And she gave that paper, and so Manny read it, said if it's red, if it's hot, if, it's, uh, uh, if, it, if there's pain. She said, oh, there's pain. It's red. And she felt it. She's like, ooh, it's hot. Elise, it's hot. Thank you. You have an infection. I don't know why Elise told Manny. Instead of telling Olivia, I think she told us, but she, uh, we, maybe we didn't do anything about it. So she said, Manny, Manny, my leg hurts. What does she think Manny's going to do? So Manny read the piece of paper. It said, call a doctor. If it persists over 24 hours, put a uh, cold, uh, wet, cold, wet paper towel on it. And so she did that. And then she said, Elise, let's pray for your leg. Let's pray for your leg. And so she put her hand on it. She said, Whenever I'm sick, I always ask my kids to pray for me. Because I want to teach them that God hears your prayers. And because I believe that prayers of children, when they're filled with faith, God hears. He answers. And so she prayed for Elise's leg to get all better. And after an hour, Elise said, 
Manny, look, my leg is better. My leg is better. And they started laughing about it together. You know, Manny can't do anything. She's not a doctor. She wants to be a pastry chef, not a medical something or other. But one thing that Manny knows is when I cannot do anything, my God can. Any one of us, if you can pray, you can be a spiritual parent. The first thing, he prays. Second thing, verse 4, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Second thing, spiritual parent not only prays, but they want to spend time with people who are coming behind them. Do you have a desire to be with the people of a coming generation? Do you long to spend time? Or if you're teaching children, you come out Wednesdays for Awana, you teach children's ministry, you teach youth ministry, why do you do it? Is there a desire in your heart, like, I want to be with them. I want to be with these people. I want to serve my house church because I love the people in it. And I've come to realize that unless you love being with people, unless you love the people, you want to spend time with them, you're not going to make much of an impact in their lives. Here's a reality that I've come to realize. This is a conviction in my heart as I'm, as I'm reading, as I'm spending time just reflecting and journaling. I can and you can impress people from afar. But you can only impact them up close. Listen, you can impress people with your words and with your talents and with your gifts. But you can only impact them when you're in close proximity and relationship with them. To me, this is why... I miss our friend Kay who went to, to Asia recently. She used to sit here in the front row. I said to someone, and I miss having her sitting in the front row worshiping and, and, and just going all out for the Lord God. But what I miss most is that whenever she wasn't working, she was trying to spend time with our youth students. Didn't matter what grade they were. Didn't matter what it was. She'd go to their dance things. She'd go to their music recitals. She would go to their sporting events. And she didn't do it because she wanted people to say, oh, you're awesome. She would hardly ever. I mean, there would be rare times where she'd post something on social media. But it was other people posting saying, thank you for coming to my thing. Because she wanted to be there. She loved them. And she was a spiritual mom to many young people in our youth ministry. Like, that's what I miss about having her here. That, that, that young girls wept and they said, I feel like my spiritual mother is leaving. As she went to follow the call of God, to see the work of God propagated amongst people who don't know it. And along the way, her desire is that people see my heart to depopulate hell and that would be incarnate in the people who are my spiritual children. Paul says, with recalling your tears, I long to see you. You can pray. You have a desire to spend time with people of the coming generation. That's spiritual parenting. Third thing it says in verse 5, I've been reminded of your sincere faith. And then he says, uh, for, verse 6, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God didn't give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, Self-discipline. Here's what he's saying. Timothy, you're pastoring this church. You've got a gift in you. This was imparted by the Spirit of God when I prayed for you. 
But the thing is, you don't believe you got that gift and you're, you're shrinking back in, in fear and in shyness and timidity. But that's not what you've got. You've got power. You've got love. You've got self-discipline. You've got everything in you, the promises of God and the Spirit of God living in you to, to be the pastor that the church in Ephesus needs you to be. He's breathing hope and breathing dreams and believing in him. The third thing it takes to be a spiritual parent is you believe in the people who are coming behind. Maybe everyone else looked at Timothy and they saw something, but Paul saw something different. He said, Timothy, I believe in you. Our, um, our eight-year-old is, um, she's sweet, but she's not very strong. And so um, our son, Elijah, is a little bit different. He's stronger, not as sweet as, as Manny is. But, so they're a little bit in the opposite in that way. But Manny would, was going to school a couple years before Elijah was, and so one of the things she would always try to do is make it across the monkey bars, but she never could because, you know, she looks like olive oil. She's like, you know, she couldn't make it, and so uh, she would get sad, and then Elijah went to school, and he would try, and then he would fall off, but in time, Elijah made it all the way across, and he used this as a point of, as a point of boasting over Manny. I made it all the way across, and so Manny is the older sister. Oh, I can do it too, and she would try, and then she couldn't do it, and so She'd come, and I remember uh, last summer over, uh, over our sabbatical, we were up in Virginia, and outside of my parents' house, a little playground with the monkey bars, and Elijah would be, like, killing it. He'd be, like, flying down there and laughing, and then Manny would be trying, and she'd stop. And then, um, you know, one time I was sitting out there with them, and, and Manny said, Daddy, I can't do the monkey bars. <laughs> I can't go all the way across. And then she said, but Elijah can. I said, Manny, I think you can do it. You can do it, too. You just got to believe that you can do it, and you got to try. I said, come here, let's, let's do this together. So she got up there, and I said, Manny, you can do this. You're just as strong as Elijah is. You can make it. And so she, she started going, and she went a little bit further than she usually does, and this point is pretty much the farthest she's ever gone. And he said, Daddy, I can't. I said, Manny, you can do it. Listen to me. You can do it. And I just started giving her this pep talk. I said, Manny, you're strong. You can do it. Look how far you've come. You've only got three more bars to go. You can do it. Man, keep on going. Keep on going. Appa believes, Daddy believes in you. You can do it. Keep on going. Keep, you just got one more. Just make it to the end, and then you can fall into Daddy's arms. She made it all the way, and, and she fell into Daddy's arms. She had this big old smile on her face. She went three bars more than she could have ever gone. If it wasn't for somebody believing in it. So I went in, in, into my room, and I wrote on my journal. I said, people like Manny all over our generation just need someone to believe in them, to need someone to say, you can do it. Believe you can do it. Keep on going. You're able. You're strong. can do it. And that's what Paul was saying to Timothy. By the power of God, you can do it. You have a hope, and you've got a future, and you've got a destiny. You go and you live in that. And then the fourth thing, do not be ashamed, in verse 9, verse 8, to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. And then jump down to verse 11. In verses 9 and 10, he explains the gospel. And then in 11, and of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. The fourth thing, pray, your time, your belief in them. And the fourth thing is, you got to be captivated by the gospel. And this may be the only thing that disqualifies some people. Got to be captivated by the gospel. This is Paul. 
He's saying, don't be ashamed. I ain't ashamed of myself. I'm in this prison. I'm about to die, but check it. I'm not here for doing something wrong. I'm here because of the gospel. And because of that, I'm cool, man. Don't be ashamed of me. I'm here for the gospel. And because of the gospel, I'm in chains. And I'm going to continue to make the gospel known wherever I am. It's for this reason, for this reason that I'm suffering as I am. Are you willing to believe that the gospel is that good, that you're willing to suffer persecution? Your friends make fun of you because you wear your Christian shirt at school and they say, is that the only clothing you have? And and you think to yourself, I got other clothes, but I want to let my light for Christ shine. And people persecute you and they make fun of you for that. The gospel's still good enough for you. And you walk around and you tell people, hey, I'm going to pray for you. And they say, pray? That's silly. Ain't nobody do that. And you say, I'll still pray for you because my God cares for you. Willing to suffer a little bit for the sake of the gospel. Because when we worship God in here as we do, God, you're so good. Anybody can do that in here. And it shows the worth, not necessarily of the gospel, but of the things that God has given to you. When we worship God in the midst of good times, we hail the greatness of the gift. That's what Piper says. But when we're willing to go through hardship and still cling to the gospel, when we're willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, we show that even when my life is in danger, even when my life is uncomfortable, even when I'm taken out of my comfort zone, that the gospel is still worthy of me following him. Is your gospel that good? Are you that captivated by the gospel that you're willing to be discomforted for the sake of the gospel in your life? Because you cannot commend to others a gospel that you do not cherish yourself. Piper says that in a paraphrase. Do you cherish the gospel that you sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise? Or is one tongue barely enough to get the praise off of our lips? Is his praise Will his praise ever be on your lips, even in times of suffering? Does your soul cry out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee? Do we really say love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my everything, my all? Are you captivated by that gospel? Because if you, it is not going to be shown in your words, it's going to be seen in your life. And you know every rule of the first rule of every mentor is that more will be caught than will be taught. And they will see that in your life. You and I are writing a gospel, a chapter a day, by deeds we do and words we say. People will read what we write, whether faithful or true. So what is the gospel according to you and according to me? How beautiful is Jesus to you? And how good is the gospel to you. This is what it means to be a spiritual parent, at least according to this particular understanding. It's an investment of prayer, an investment of our time, an investment of our belief, an investment into the gospel, into our own hearts, so that that could be transferred into the lives of other people. What's the best translation of the Bible to read? It's the translation that's the translation of your life. Read by everybody for all to see. That's the investment that spiritual parents make. The last thing that we see is that that investment 
could be your greatest gift to the kingdom. Your investment as a sixth grader, as you go back and you teach Awana, your investment as a sixth grader as you go back and teach VBS, your investment as a junior in high school, as you begin to take these sixth graders under your wings, your investment into your house church members, your investment into your children as you raise them, whatever that investment looks like as a Sunday school teacher to your youth students, that could be your greatest gift to the kingdom of God. The sad thing is that these studies talk about how only one out of eight kids say, I talked to my mom about my faith. And one out of 20 said, I talked to my dad about my faith. Your greatest gift, and I read this somewhere on Facebook, the greatest contribution that you make to the kingdom is not something you do, but it's somebody that you raise. And that Timothy could change the world. Man, what I... When I look at this congregation, I see, like, we could change the world. Like, just little sparks going out into places that where people are just waiting. Like, the gas has already been set. The harvest is plentiful. Just one little firefly going out and pew, just setting that thing on fire. These are your kids. These are our kids. These are our youth students. These are kingdom keepers. These are college students. These are people who are just one year younger than you. They're an adult. They don't know anything about Jesus, but you begin investing in them. They're going to get it. They're going to they're go with it. could be the greatest thing because, you know, God is always, 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 always. David was a teenager when he threw those stones at Goliath and saved the nation. Esther was a teenager when she risked her life but saved a generation from genocide so that the seed of the promise could be propagated so that Jesus Christ could one day be born in Bethlehem to the people of God, the king of the Jews. Josiah was a 16-year-old king who brought revival to Israel when his father and his grandfather's generation had got completely apostate. Mary was a teenager when she became pregnant with Jesus, the Son of God. God has always used young people. And in every one of these young people, there was always a Paul in their lives. It's always. For Mary, it was Elizabeth. For Esther, it was Mordecai. For Josiah, it was his mom, Jedidah. For David, it was Samuel. There was always someone speaking truth into that young person's life to say, you got a, you got a vision, you got to go for it. And as a result, man, people walked on water. As a result of Moses investing into Joshua, walls came tumbling down. Giants were slain. Crazy things started happening. Man, your greatest contribution to the kingdom may not ever be a message that you give or something that you do, but it's a person that you're going to raise up. A person in your house, church, a person that you invest in, a person that you give your life to. Because here's the reality, as important as parents are, it takes a village. It takes a village. Chap Clark, all these youth ministry gurus say, if you've got five Pauls in one person's life, the chance of them following Christ after high school exponentially increases. Who's a Timothy who's calling your name today? That you can be one of these five so that faith could be nurtured in them. This, this week I was late to pick up Elijah from, uh, and Manny from school. And I know Manny's fine with it, but Elijah, you know, he, he, may, he may get sad. It's about 10 minutes late. 
It was too late for us to call anybody that already gone, and it was just Windermere High School traffic, which is crazy. And I was stuck in there, and I got there. And as I was walking across the crosswalk, one of Elijah's friend, Cole, his mom said, oh, Elijah's over there with Boston's dad, and his mom and dad are going to watch out for him. And as I got across the street, um, Boston's dad was waving at me, saying, Elijah's right here, Elijah's right here. And then Boston's mom came, they're like, we got Elijah. So I was like, hey, thanks for looking out for him. He's like, this is what we do. This is what we do. We're not going to leave these kids alone. This is what we do. I thought to myself, man, what if we said that here at our church? Not just intergenerational. This is awesome. But this is what we do. Like we take care of other people's kids as our own spiritual kids. This is what we do. We look out for each other. We're not going to let them go. We're going to form circles around these people, and we're going to grow with them together. When I was over my sabbatical, I was in Vancouver for a week, and I spent time with an older brother of mine from college who's been pastoring for the past 20 years in Vancouver. And his daughter's turning, uh, she's hitting adolescence and, and puberty and scared the heck out of him. And so he said, I asked three ladies in the church to be part of this group of five. And he said, I'm not asking you to do much, and this is just until she gets through high school. He said he didn't want to scare them away by having them do it for the rest of her life. But he said, I just want you once a week, just pray for her. Just pray for her once a week. And then every year on her birthday, just take her out and just spend time with her. That's all I want. So I started talking with Olive. I said, what if we did that for Manny? It doesn't have to be older people. It could be a sixth grader that she respects, that she loves. Could be a tenth grader that she loves. Could be a single person. Could be a married person. It doesn't matter. But we pray about that and, and get these people around them. I don't care. You jack this idea. That would be awesome. You take it. Take it and run with it. Let's run. Let's get circles around our young people. I read of another pastor. His name is Kerry. He, when his uh, boy was turning 13, his oldest was turning 13, uh, he asked his son, he said, hey, who are five men in the church that you really love and respect at a spiritual level? He named these five. And so he went to each of them and he said, hey, uh, I want you over the summer just Spend, spend, spend some time, one day, one day. Doesn't matter what you do, bowling, roller skating, I, I don't care what you do. Just take him out and two things. Just give him one piece of spiritual advice and then give him one life advice, just good advice to have. And these five men would do that. And at the end of the summer, they all got together for dinner. The boy Jordan gave each of these men a Bible with their names on it. And then uh, he shared about what he learned from each of these men. Then after that, each of the men talked about what they saw, all the great things they saw in Jordan. He began speaking into his life. They got together, they laid hands on him, and they prayed for him. The dad said, man, it was so good. He did that with his second son. Second son, they did the same thing. And at the end, the five men around the second son were just, just crying. They said, man, this was so awesome. He said, can we do this every summer with your son? Because you see, all of us need a Paul in our lives, but all of us need a Timothy in our lives also. It's not just that they need us, but we need them. You never lose when you invest into those who are coming behind you. You never lose. So Paul did to Timothy, just gave his life, poured into him, believed in him, prayed for him, invested time into him, and saw that blossom 
to become the person that God was calling him to be. Never lose. And I think it's, I think it's something of the heartbeat of God because whenever he calls us to something, he doesn't just say do it because it's the right thing to do. Let's do it because there's always a protection, but there's always a provision for us. We always gain. We do. And I think when we do, we begin to understand the gospel a little bit better. Because when we do, we begin to live out the heartbeat of God. Because when God looked at the little people, the children of the world, people didn't see much. They said they're to be seen and not heard. In fact, in the ancient days that the early church was beginning to grow, when children were born, and if they were a girl or if they had a birth defect or something that the parent didn't want, they just throw them on the trash heap. And they would burn them with the rest of the refuse. Everett Ferguson writes this great book, The Rise of Christianity. Why did Christianity take over the world? And there's this all these uh, non-believing writers, non-Christian writers, just historians. And one of these people, I forget who it was, said, this was fascinating to me. He said, he said, these Christians are strange people. They not only care about their own kids, but they care about ours on the trash heap as well. He said, there's something divine about these people. Because that's the heart of God. That God wanted so much to be with these children that he came down into our world. Emmanuel, God with us. He saw in you and me what nobody else saw. When everyone else shunned the children, Jesus said, no, 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 no. Let the children come unto me. He wanted to spend time with them. He prayed for them. He believed in them. When everyone else saw sinners, Jesus says, Yet to all who received, to those who believed in my name, I give the right to become children of God. And that's who we are, children of God. And he said, this is how much I love them. This is how much I love them. I won't just, I'm not just going to say it. I'm not just going to, I'll go to the cross in order that people like you and me, in order that children who are coming behind us, could know how valuable and how worthy and how loved they are. Guys, when we invest into these Timothys, yeah, they need it. But we might need it more to understand the reality of the gospel. And maybe for a great many of us, this is the next step in your discipleship journey. To get a Paul, yeah. To have a Barnabas, yeah. But to begin to invest in a Timothy. Not all of us are going to be parents, but listen, every Christian has been called to spiritual parenting. That means investing in them, in time, in prayer, in belief, and then investing the gospel into you because that could be, that could be, that could be the greatest thing you ever give to the kingdom. Let's pray. Whether you're a sixth grader, whether you're a college student, whether you're a high schooler, whoever you are, can I tell you, you're pregnant with spiritual children. God is calling you to arise and to pray and to invest in some Timothy in your life. Can we take that first step right now and begin to pray for them? Who's that Timothy? Who's that young girl, young lady that God has been putting in your heart for some time? For whatever reason, there's a first person you see on your 
social media feed. For some reason, when you pray, their, their, their name constantly comes up. For some reason, you always feel like, I want to text them. For some reason, they're always on your mind. Could it be that through this message, God is calling you to be a Paul, a Timothy to them, uh, a Paul to them as Timothy? Let's take a minute right now just to pray. Say, Lord, I want my life to be used for you. Lord, I want my life to honor you. Maybe some of you, you don't feel quite there yet because you feel like the gospel has become old to you. Let's pray. Lord, may my heart be open to believe again, to wonder again, to be captivated again by the gospel. Can we pray for just a minute or so? A minute and a half. This time is crucial here, right? Because the majority of weeks, we hear, we say, oh, that's awesome, I, I'm going to do that, and then we walk out not changing. But this is where God begins to change our hearts, and we make decisions to say, God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get five people in my son's life, my daughter's life. I'm going to be one of these people in so-and-so's life. I'm going to, I know it starts today, but I'm going to talk to Pastor DL, and I'm going to say, I want to be a teacher. I want to teach our youth. I want to teach our kids. Whatever it might be. And let's pray. Honestly, God, I give my heart to you. Let's pray for a minute, minute and a half, and then I'll pray for us. And we'll continue to respond as we give his tithes, our offerings, and our worship back to the Lord God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you that this room is pregnant with destiny and is pregnant, everyone, with spiritual children. Every child of God is called to invest in those who are coming behind us. And so, Father, may we do that. For those in here for whom today's their first day, either because they're a guest, because they're a sixth grader, because they came with a friend, whoever, wherever we are, Pray that we begin today to say, Lord, I'm going to do this. For those who've been coming for a long time who feel stagnant, Lord, show us that for many of us, this is the next step in the growth of our relationship with you. And for others of us who've been doing this, but we feel like our hearts need to be checked, woo us, captivate us, mesmerize us, that we'd be spellbound by the gospel again, that we would never lose the fascination what you've done for us and what you've called us to be. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.